Well, we're in part three of a sermon series called For the Life of the World, or Flow for short, because, you know, F-L-O-W, For the Life of the World. And we've been talking about this theme that's been going on through the Bible from almost the beginning of the Bible to almost the very end of the Bible, which is this theme called exiles. Now, if you, in case you don't know what exiles are, exiles are basically a fancy term to say in the Bible. It's to say, if you are a person of God and you find yourself living in a culture that is not of God, how are you supposed to behave? How are you supposed to behave? And um, we looked through the book of Jeremiah, and we, specifically Jeremiah chapter 29, and what we discovered is that what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to bless the world that we're in. If you find yourself in a place, like in your workplace or even your family, where you're like, we don't share the same values, what are we supposed to do? Jeremiah tells us that God told him that, well, the main thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to do your best to bless the community that you're a part of, even if you don't agree with them. Invite them over for a meal, hang out with them, marry into the community. So these are some of the things that we've been talking about. And, and so one of the basic understandings of what we're supposed to do is this. This is what we talked about. It's that we need to live as if your well-being is tied to your community's well-being. And that's how we're supposed to live. If you are living in a community and you realize that you're amongst people who are not like you, then our natural tendency is to have this us versus them mentality. They have to lose so that Christians win. And, we've, and you know, we're engaging in a culture war and we've discovered that that usually leaves nobody winning. And so what God tells us to do is we're supposed to go and engage in the world and be a part of it and bless it. None of that, you know, the world is evil, the church is good, so we hope that the world fails. That's, that's not biblical, that's not what God says. As a matter of fact, we talked about how for the past 250 years of the church in America, well, you know, and part of Europe, what we discovered is that we tend to take this tendency of fortifying. We're like, hey, let's build up walls so that evil doesn't penetrate, doesn't come into our church and into our families. And so we create our own Christian version of everything. We start create, we create the Christian version of music, Christian version of movies, Christian version of whatever, right? And we basically set ourselves apart from the world and in doing so, we lose touch with the world. And Jeremiah says, that's the wrong way of going about it. We're supposed to go and engage the world and bless the world. So if that's what we're supposed to do, the next follow-up question would be this. How should exiles bless their communities? If we're supposed to be blessing our communities, how are we supposed to do it? And then on the first sermon, we talked about how God is like a conductor of an orchestra. And he's saying that in order for all this to work, we need to first start with relationships. And there's a specific way that God wants us to live out our relationships, like in our families, with, the, with our roommates, with, with our partners, whoever you're with, right? And, and, he, and last week we talked about how the way that we're supposed to conduct our relationships is the way that the Trinity conducts their relationship, where we pour out into each other. And when we start pouring out to each other and the other person pours themselves into us and so forth, we become a unit that blesses the people and the communities around us. Today, we're going to be looking at the second aspect of that, which is this, work. So, like, God is a conductor. He's saying, this is how I want you to do relationships. Next section of the orchestra, this is how I want you to do your work. Now, if you're expecting the Bible to tell you how to do your job, you're not going to find it. Okay, because God is not interested in telling you, he's not a micromanager. He's not going to tell you how to make shoes or how to 
do your finances or how to, you know, he, he's not into that. Instead, he, what he's interested in you knowing is how he views, how he views work, right? And so he wants you to ask, well, how does God want us to view work? Now, if you're anything like the average American, this is, this is what work is to you. You wake up in the morning, you're tired. It's Monday morning, and you're like, oh, I have to wake up again. I shouldn't have stayed up watching Netflix or whatever you watch. But I got to get up and go to work because if I don't, I'll be fired. And from fired, no paycheck. No paycheck, no family vacation, no house, no food, right? And so for us, work has become a thing that supports our livelihood, right? I mean, this is why we work. When you get out of college or you're about to get out of college, the first thing on your mind is, I got to hurry up and start looking for a job because otherwise I have no place to live. This is what work is today. But that's not what work was intended to be in the first place. So we're going to look at the scriptures and we're going to look at the first place that the word work is used in the Bible. Now, where is that? You guessed it. (laughs) <laughs> the book of Genesis. All right. So let's start from Genesis chapter 2. This is when God created the Garden of Eden, and he puts Adam and Eve in this place. The Lord God, this is verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, there's the word, work, and take care of it. Now you're like, okay, so is this supposed to be insightful, Cots? Because it doesn't really say anything about how we're supposed to look at work. I get it, Okay. What I want you to pay attention to is not what it says about work, because it doesn't really say too much about it, but I want you to take a look at where it says it. This is chapter 2, verse 15. If you know your scriptures, you know that chapter 3 is when everything falls apart, when sin enters the world. The point that I want to make here is work is introduced into humanity by God, and it was meant to be good. It was meant to be a part of it. Like when God's like, I just want to bless humanity with everything I can. He's like, and here is work. Work was a gift from God. As a matter of fact, last week we talked about when God created the world, he was like, I'm going to create the the darkness and the light. And then later on day four, he created the sun and the moon and says, I want you to govern over the light light part of the day and the dark parts of the day, right? In other words, God creates something, a system, and then he creates things to govern over the things that he was governing in the first place. Humanity, likewise, God created the world, and he created humanity and says, now I want you to be responsible for all of creation. So by doing work, you're discovering more of who God is, so you're doing things you're like, ooh, I like being creative. God, are you creative too? You're organizing things, and you're like, wait, God, are you the God of order also? So as we are doing work, we're growing closer and closer to God because you're discovering who he is by discovering your joy of doing things. Like my kids, they like to draw in color, sometimes not on the paper, you know, but as they're doing it, I'm watching them doing quote-unquote work, and I'm watching them thinking, wow, is this what God is like? Like they're enjoying being creative and making the world more colorful, or as my son goes and plays baseball, right? <laughs> and he's, he's cheering his first friends because he had a, they had a really good hit. I'm watching that thinking, is that what God is like? Where he cheers on the people who are doing great? Like, oh, so this is what God is like. So work was part of, it was a gift. That's what work was meant to be. As you watch what you, the things that you really enjoy, you start to discover what God is like. As you start to work with your hands and you're like, it's actually fun to cook. 
God, is that what you're like? You enjoy making good things that, that makes other people happy? Yeah. And as you cook and you're like, oh, this needs a little more salt. Like, I just need a little tweaking here and there. You're like, God, is that what you're like too? You just want to keep improving things? So work was a gift. Work was good. Because this is before chapter 3. Now let's take a look at how work is described in chapter 3, after sin enters the world. Chapter 3, verse 17. God is speaking here. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you, because they totally messed up. Through painful toil, so work is now toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Agrarian culture. What you do is you plant a seed, you water it, and then you have a tree or whatever come, you know, vegetables come out of it, and you eat. The work you put into the ground is what you get out of it, you eat. But now, work is cursed. So you pour into the ground, but you won't get that out of it. You're like, I'm going to eat five tomatoes. I only got two, and one of them is kind of shriveled up. You know, <laughs> right? It's like, now work is not going to be fun. It's going to be toil. And not only that, you're going to need it to survive. Your livelihood is on the line now. Work wasn't like that before the fall, but now it is. That's not the only thing they say, God says. He says, it will produce thorns. It will hurt you. It's not going to be all joy anymore. And thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. Again, you need to do this. You have to suffer now in order to eat. So work is changing, right? Then it says, by the sweat of your brow, because it's a lot of work, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is a Hebrew idiom, which says, God created you out of dirt, one day you're going to return to dirt. And so basically from the day you're born to the day you die, you're going to be a slave to the ground, to the dirt. You're going to be a slave to work. Before work was a gift. So before sin, work is a gift from God. But now with sin in the world, work, after sin, work is toil and it's a way to survive. Which describes the attitude that we have for work today, isn't it? Like I said, you wake up tomorrow morning. Oh, it's Monday. I wish today was still Sunday, but I had to go to church yesterday. So for some of you, church is like work, right? Well, for me, it is, but you know. <laughs> and like, if I don't work, I won't eat. I'm going to put in 40 hours, but what I get in return feels like I, you know, like I only work 10 hours. Like it, it doesn't feel right. That's the curse of work now. Sin twisted the good gift that God has given us, which is work, and made it into something that we need to do in order to survive. And so our attitude, the way we see work, changes. So we're like, well, what are we supposed to do about this? Wait, aren't we people, Christians, aren't we the people who have, who have been redeemed from that sin? Like, come on, God, isn't there, like, what are we supposed to do? And this is why we go back to the question of, how does God want us to view work? Because if we see work the way that God sees work, maybe we'll have a different attitude towards it. And with the kind of work that we do with that new attitude, we're able to bless the world that we're in right now. So where in the Bible does it talk about work? Well, to be honest, there isn't like any specific verse in the Bible that talks about work. Jesus addresses it a little bit, and we'll talk about that later. So we have to look at some theologians because there's some great people in the past 2,000 years who've done a lot of work on this. But there's one singular person who put in a lot of work and had made great contributions to our understanding of work. And that person is this guy right here. His name is Martin Luther. 
He looks good in a beret, I know, but you know, he made it cool, I guess, right? And he has a really interesting past. Okay, so first of all, he was part of the Catholic Church. Back, well, basically, if you were alive back then, the majority of you would have been in the Catholic Church. That was like, there's only like two denominations back then, well, actually three, but this was the major one, and there were two small ones, which was the Eastern Church. Okay, but there's Martin Luther, and he's working his way up to becoming a priest. Oh, actually, he already is a priest. But along his way, somebody, one of his mentors said, hey, you know what? Martin, you should be, you should be a, a monk. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll be a monk. What do I have to do? You have to go live in a monastery. Okay, so I'll go to the monastery. So he goes and lives in a monastery. Now, what I'm about to say right now is what Martin Luther said. If you want to go to a monastery, that's totally your thing. Like, if it works for you, it works for you. You're going to find out that it didn't work for this guy. Okay, so Martin Luther, this is a famous quote. Uh, basically, like, it's like, how was your, ex like, there was like this big interview, like in the press. It's like, Mr. Luther, how was your experience at the monastery? This is what he said. He said, I lost touch with Christ, the savior and comforter, and made him the jailer and hangman of my soul. It's like, when I was living in the monastery, I lost all joy of following Jesus. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying, right? So for him, it clearly was not his thing. It might be for you. But, you know, for somebody, I don't know. But for him, not, okay? And there's several reasons why it didn't work out for him. It's because he, you know, like, he would do things and he would ask questions. He was like a total brainiac. He's asking questions all the time. And the priests and the monks didn't have any answers for him. And sometimes he'll overhear them talking about something in their little huddles over there. And he's like, I can't believe that's what we believe. And so he had, like, 95 things that he really didn't like. And later on, he wrote it out and put it on the door in the church in Germany, and the Protestant Reformation started. We don't, we're not going to talk about that. Um, but there's three things that he overheard them talking about that he disagreed with about this topic of work. Like when they heard him talking about work, they, it felt like they were talking about like, oh yeah, well, we priests, you know, monks, the missionaries, we're the real workers of God's world. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, like if the most important thing in this world is to save souls, then obviously the most important jobs are like priests, missionaries, and scholars. And Martin Luther's like, that doesn't feel right. So he came up with three things that he wanted to say about work. And the first thing is, and they're all connected, the first thing is this, that all work is worthy. He says, just because you are in charge of you know, preaching the word of God, and this person's in charge of milking a cow, it doesn't mean that this is important and that's not important. Because you know, like, what if the priest is thirsty? What if he wants to drink milk? All of a sudden, this person's job is important. So all work is worthy. As a matter of fact, this is what he said about milkmaids. He said this, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. When he wrote this, the word vocation and milkmaid were never put together, but he totally did it. He was like, controversial, woo, right? He says, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. Through her hands, God answers prayers of his children. Like that person's job is so important because there are babies who need to drink milk, and without them, there's no milk. So don't you think that's pretty important too? As a matter of fact, you know at night people pray for bread? You know, like, please, Lord, give us our daily bread. He's, this is what he said about that. We pray for bread at night, and bakers rise in the morning to bake it. When people pray for certain things, and it comes true, it's like, don't you think there's somebody over here that's making it happen? These are God's hands and feet that's answering your... As, you know what? Actually, priests, missionaries, you're the ones who are praying the most, 
And most of those prayer requests are coming true because of these workers that you think are not real workers, you know? So um, Martin Luther's like, I have a huge issue with that. And he continues this idea. He says, by our work, the naked are clothed, the hungry are fed, the sick healed. By our labor, we love our neighbors. God has called everybody to love their neighbors. And if you don't value everybody's work, we are missing out on blessing our community. Every work matters. And he's like, and by the way, priests, you guys wear clothes, right? Well, guess what? He says, God gives us wool, but not without our labor. If it is on the, sl- on the sheep, it makes no garment. Like, if you're naked, it's like, there's a sheep. Oh, what, you want me to do something with the sheep? Oh, you want, you want clothes out of the sheep? Oh, well, you know, you need workers. <laughs> like, everybody is, like, it's, everybody's important. So, again, the first point that he made was that all work is worthy. And connected to that, number two, no hierarchies of work. There's no such thing as this job is more important than this job. Just because somebody preaches the Bible doesn't mean that job is more important than, you know, um, a person who drives the bus. Like, they're all important. And then he makes a third point, and I think this is the most important of the three, and that's why I'm putting it in red. He says, work is not only for you. Remember how I said that a lot of us, when we wake up in the morning and go to work, you're thinking about, if I don't go to work, I'm going to be fired. If I get fired, then I don't get a paycheck. And if I don't have a paycheck, my needs are not going to be met. So work is all about getting our needs met. Martin Luther would disagree with that. Well, he would agree with that, but he would say that's not the only reason why we need to work. As a matter of fact, at the time that Martin Luther was really like, honing in on this, the Catholic Church believed in three things about what we get out of work, three benefits. Here are the three. First, material provision. When you work, you get something in return. You could eat tomorrow because you're working, right? The second one is divine rewards. That when you work, somehow you're serving the Lord through your work, and God is saying, good job for waking up in the morning and going to work. Good job. God gives you, like, an, you know, a hand or something, right? And the third one is that it's a cure for pride. People who, wake, you know, who go into society and they realize, like, hey, I'm a nobody if I don't have a good occupation. So you go out there and say, hey, guess what, guys? I'm a doctor. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're a doctor. And so it gives you this sense of pride. It gives you a place in society. So this is what the church at the time believed. And Martin Luther steps into this discussion and says, I think there's a problem with this list. Because all three of these things have to do with selfish benefits. It serves me and me only. Like when I go to work tomorrow, it's for me and nobody else. So Martin Luther says this, there's probably two more reasons why we need to go to work. Next one, it it meets the needs of others. Our work provides necessary services to the people around us. If you're sick, there's a doctor. The doctor isn't just working for him or herself, the doctor is also working for the person who is sick. It benefits the people around you. I'll give you an example. So take a look at this, this is a table Really nice craftsman I found on Google Images, okay? And this benefits, this is not the table we have at home. Mine's from Ikea, but this one, it benefits my family if I had it, right? I could eat on it, it brings the family together. If you have guests over, we could pull up a few more chairs, right? So whoever made this table, sure, probably got a paycheck for it, but 
I'm also benefiting from it. There's probably been a lot of board games that we played on this table, and it's, you know, it's built some kind of bond. And when friends come over, if families come over, we have a birthday party, we benefit from it. My kids will probably do their homework on this table. They're going to get smarter and smarter because of this table. Not just because of this table, but it's going to play a role in it, right? There's going to be times at night when my wife and I, we're going to pray on this because we don't know what we're supposed to do next. And God's going to give us an answer because this table was not just made, it's not just for the benefit of the person who made it, it's also for the benefit of the people who experienced this table. Now, the reason why I'm using this table as an example is because when we're talking about this whole theology of work thing, when I was in seminary, when I was in school to be a pastor, my professor showed a picture of a table, not this one, I couldn't find the one that he was looking for. And he was making this really interesting point. And he said this is something that, that Martin Luther really talked about a lot. He said that, you know what it takes to build this table? So my professor had a table, he took a picture, he put it on the screen at school, and he said, I actually tracked down the craftsman who designed and made this table. And I, I interviewed that craftsman and found out where the tree came from. And so he did this whole thing where he tracked down, he went to the person who you know, the tree belonged to and said, okay, so where did you, and of course you plant this tree, and who came and chopped it down, and so forth, right? And he compiled a list of people that it took to actually get this table in his, in his, in his house. Here's the list. I copied down the list from the screen. I don't know who these people are, okay? But he said, Elroy Williams, he's a farmer from Pennsylvania. He's the one that planted this tree. But he doesn't know how to chop down the tree, so he hired a forester, Tom Wilcox from Ohio. He paid him to come over and chop down this tree, okay? And then Amy Shepard, who's a mill worker, so that big tree was sent to a mill, and they cut it down to sizes so that it could be sold. And that person was Amy Shepard from Kentucky. And then this is W.E. Uyghurs. This is the craftsman that he was talking about from Iowa. I Iowa, 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 you know what I'm talking about, right? And so even before he got the pieces of wood, there were several people before him that is connected to this. And between every single transaction, there's money that's being spent and given, and people are using that money to send their kids to school and stuff like that and feeding their families, so people are benefiting from it, right? And then even after that, it turns out that this, this craftsman doesn't know how to run a business, so he hired somebody to be the owner or the person who operates the day-to-day -day stuff, and that person's name is Samantha Green from Arizona. And then... After doing a little more digging, he found out that the saw that they use, the saw blade that they use, was the saw blade production was from Joaquin Martinez from Mexico. And that the person, when they used a drill to make that table, it was Jory Pol Polinski from Washington. And the iron ore miner who you know, got the iron is Dale Vandenberg from Minnesota. Sorry, I'm really bad with names, <laughs> right? And what he's saying is everything that you own anything that you've purchased, let's just say you have a book. Behind that book, there's a publisher, there's an author, there's a paper mill, there are people who made the leather binding, there are people who made the ink. There's a whole group of people, so everything that you have in your home, everything, in, everything that you're wearing right now, there's a long list of people. Think about the guitar. Who invented and designed the first guitar? Because without that, we wouldn't have the guitar today. Who grew the tree that, made, that that's, that's the wood that we use to make this guitar? And so what my professor was saying, channeling 
Martin Luther, is this, all our work is a result of a mysterious collaboration. Even though you're in your own shop working on making that guitar or table or whatever, you're never really alone. You're connected to the world when you do this. And so everything that you own starts, this is what Martin Luther said, everything that you own starts with somebody and ends with somebody. And in between, there's all these other people in between. And so in, for this reason, Martin Luther argued that if you were to buy something, make sure you have a relationship or at least start a relationship with the person who's selling you these things because then you're adding yourself as part of that long chain of people. And it connects you to the rest of the world. So my professor at the time said, hey, you know, so if you can, try to go to a farmer's market. Have a conversation with the person who's selling the produce and say, hey, so where's your farm? Get to know them. And as you're eating it that night or that day, you're, you're eating it, you're thinking, wow, this was grown by somebody actually met, you know, right? And you're part of that chain now. And, and this is also why it's so important that we need to seek justice where there is exploitation and work. Because what the exploitation of work does is that it pulls away all the beauty that's part of work, the economy of work. So, yeah, so anyways. Anyways, so anyway, so here at the list, again, Martin Luther looked at the list of the Catholic Church and said, no, we need to add that it meets the needs of others, but also it connects us. That this is actually a fellowship. When work is the way it's supposed to be done, if, if you understand how God views work, then you discover that it's not just for our needs, it also connects us to the world. And this is so important, right? So this is what he says, that work was meant to be a glue that binds our community. Imagine back in the day where everything wasn't worldwide, but everything was local. Let's just say in your village, you built a house for this family. And everybody stands in front of the house, and as they walk into the house, you realize our village, all of us contributed to this one house. Yes, it's their house, they're gonna live in it, but this is actually our house because somebody grew the tree, like that guy from down the street, he's the one that chopped down the tree, and that guy down, you know, that lady down the street is the one that designed the, you know, the exterior, I don't know, <laughs> I'm not a home builder. You know, this, that person over there is the one that nailed in these, these nails to, you know, for that room over there. That person put the furniture together, that person did this, that person did that, you know, and that person fed the people who were working, and that person, and so when you look at a house, it wasn't so individualistic. It wasn't about, this is the Johnson's house, although they're the ones who live in it. It was our house. And so when the house caught on fire, the whole village came together to put it out. And if the house burned down, the whole village came together to make sure that that family was taken care of. That's what work has the power to do. It has the way of connecting us like glue. It's the thing that bound, bounded us. But you're like, hey, Klaus, that sounds good. You know, I wish work was like that, you know? But the reality is, it's not really like that. Work has become toil and only a means to make our ends meet, right? That's the reality that we live in. But I just wanted to make sure that you understood what God wanted work to be in the first place. It was a powerful and very beautiful way of bringing everybody together. But like I said, we don't live in that world right now. We live in a world where if you don't go to work, you might lose something important to you. You'll be very uncomfortable. And Jesus understood this. Jesus understood this because he lived 2,000 years ago in Israel, 
that was taken over by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire hired people from Israel as tax collectors, so they're asking their own people to betray their own people, and they would tax their own people over 50%. So imagine working your ground for hours. Imagine going fishing and you caught like 100 fish. And when you get back to shore, the tax collector is waiting for you right there and says, hey, we're taking 60 of those. But you're like, but I need, the, I need, I need all of that so I could sell it, so I could put it out for my family. like, sorry, you can't do that. By order of the Caesar, we're taking 60 of those. So Jesus understood a world where there was a scarcity. You need to make sure they have enough for your family. So work has become, for them, a necessity to survive. So this is what Jesus says. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is not a verse about how you, money is bad. It's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, if your goal in life is just set on making money, then that is your God. You, you cannot serve both our God and money. They could coexist, meaning you could have money in your pocket while worshiping God, but, he, but you cannot make money the sole focus of your life. So he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will, what, what you will wear. It's like, yes, I know you're thinking that if I stop working, then, you know. He's not saying don't work. What he's saying here is, when you live your life with the focus of, I need to make sure I have enough money for food and clothes and stuff like that, and you're willing to compromise the God, God's vision for what work is supposed to be, then you're gonna lose something greater and so if you have to focus on one, if you have to compromise on one, make sure you don't compromise on the side of God's vision for what work ought to be. It is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. He's saying that if money is your idol, if you focus on money, and let's just say you're successful because of that. Be, you know, you're like, okay, you know, right now we need to focus on money because money is the thing that's going to, you know, let's just say you, it works out for you. He says that that path will lead you further and further away from what God intended for the community around you. If you're in exile and if you want to bless the community you're in, you got to make sure that money is not your sole focus. That you're always trying to bring work back to the way that God intended it to be. You're supposed to be working for God, and you're supposed to be working for your community, for the love of this world, not just for yourself. So what God is saying is this. Jesus is saying work is a gift that improves our community. And if you can't see that, if the reason you're working is so that you could hoard, so you could have more, or that you want to have a more comfortable life, or if the reason for work is that if I just do this and work at it more, I will gain more control other, other, over other people. He says, you're actually working against what God intended work to be in the first place. So he said, be careful. Don't worship money. If you work, work for God and his vision of what the world ought to be, not work so that you could build up your own kingdom. So in summary, we're going to wrap up now. Work should never be reduced to the task or a paycheck. If you are a bus driver and you're thinking, my job is to ride this bus from point A to point B and make a few dozen stops along the way, that's your task. God wants you to focus on the vision of what that work is. 
So instead of saying, my job is to drive a bus from point A to point B with a few dozen stops in between, instead think, by me driving this bus, I'm taking people to where they need to be and keeping this world alive. If I make loud noises on airplanes, <laughs> that's loud. If you are an accountant and you think that your job is just numbers and money, he says, don't think about it that way. Think of it in terms of, I'm helping this bigger community work through their financial needs or whatever. I don't know what they do, I'm sorry. You know, but, um, but think about everything that you do. Garbage collector, my job, my task is to pick up trash and you throw it into your truck and then you take it to a landfill, sure, okay. Or think in the bigger picture. If I don't do my job, society will start to fall apart. I'm taking the filth of each home and taking it away, keeping their houses sanitary. Think in terms of vision, not just a task. If you're a teacher, your job isn't just to teach kids. Because one day, at the end of the story, there's gonna be a doctor. There's gonna be some powerful CEO or whatever, and they're gonna say, every single teacher that came before me, every mentor that came before me contributed to who I am today. Somebody's gonna cure some crazy disease in the future, and you got to play a part in that chain. So the second thing I want you to know is this, that your work is part of a bigger picture. Oh, I just build houses. No, 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 you're building families. The bigger picture. So whether if you're a janitor, a CEO, a computer programmer, an athlete, you think like, hey, uh, my job is just to throw a ball into a hoop, you know, right? It's like, no. You're contributing to the life of the community. Um, whether if you're a politician, or because today's Mother's Day, if you're a mother, your job is not just to raise your children. That's the task. The bigger picture is you're building up disciples. You're creating human beings that could change the world. And that's how God wants us to view work. He wants us to look at our work realizing that when I do my work, and by work, I'm not saying anything that you get paid for. Work is also parenting, volunteer work. When you're working, you're contributing to the life of the community. And so when you're working, don't just think, I'm doing this for me. When you wake up in the morning tomorrow, I don't want you to think, if I don't do this, I'm not gonna get paid. That's true. But when you wake up tomorrow, think, by waking up and going to work, I'm actually contributing to the life of this world. Amen? All right, let's pray.